I have previous, previously mentioned how the pasana practice um, purifies our understanding of wrong views, where sila, the practice of the precepts, purifies our speech and behavior through mindfulness of intention. And mindfulness purifies our mind by being mindful of the obsessions. It is vipassana, or insight, that purifies our understanding of wrong views. Last night I spoke about the characteristic of dukkha and how um, all phenomena, all of our experiences of mind and body, have the characteristic of dukkha, painful or unstable, therefore not able to provide security, leaving us vulnerable, or they're oppressive. And this is quite a confront to our pleasure-seeking activities in life. When we see through our immediate and ongoing experience of mindfulness that, wow, everything we seek has these has this characteristic. Tonight I want to speak about another one of the Vipassana insights, and that is the anatta characteristic. Now I have to say that uh, the anatta characteristic has has previously been translated as uh, selflessness or uh, something like that, which is uh, no self or selflessness, which is kind of scary, like, what the heck's that mean? <laughs> you know, uh, and so it's kind of challenging to to get the, the not only the meaning but the uh, experience really of this anatta characteristic. So I want to try tonight to uh, share some understanding. Because when we see the dukkha characteristic, for example, that things are painful or unstable or oppressive, the mind eventually just says, wait a minute, why, why am I reaching, grasping and holding on, seeking, attaching myself and being identified with experiences that are painful, that are unstable, that are oppressive? And so too with the insight into impermanence, when we see that conditions give rise to experience momentarily, we taste it for a moment, it passes, nothing lingers for long. Why are we pursuing so wildly, madly pursuing and holding on to ideas and people and achievements, accomplishments, things, status, prestige, beliefs? And when we see that, we when we see that they're so fleeting, the mind just naturally doesn't, isn't quite so fascinated, isn't so under the cast, it isn't so easily cast under the spell of the appearance of things, because we see, we see deeply that it's impermanent, it doesn't last. So when we so too see the characteristic of the anatta characteristic, 
Uh, I'm going to call it the not-self characteristic. Once we see that, and we see it with some continuity and some depth of understanding, or some depth of experience, then, again, the mind just doesn't reach for, pursue, hang on to, or expect, hope for some relief or some some enduring essence or entity to our experience. But I have to say that the the teaching on the not-self characteristic is unique to the Buddhist teachings. It's not encoded, it's not uh, an element of the teachings of any other uh, spiritual tradition or religious tradition. And on the other hand, it is indispensable to understanding the depth of the Buddha's understanding of liberation. So it is a subtle understanding. And you can be forgiven or excused if it's hard to understand. Because it is. It's hard to understand and it's elusive to confirm with our personal experience. But gradually, just as when walking in the fog for an extended period of time, you eventually get wet. Well, so too with, if you practice mindfulness, you will gradually, (coughs) moment by moment, at different times, you'll see, you'll feel, you'll understand the not-self characteristic, and eventually it will have its transformative effect on your understanding. But what it essentially states is that in this conventional reality of me and you and others, we mistakenly believe that there is within this body-mind process someone. There's a self, there's an enduring entity we call me or myself. And it is the one who feels feelings. It is the one who is willful in making decisions. We see it as the one who is able to direct the body to move in the ways we want it to. It's the one that controls what we do with our time. It's the one who is the eternal resident. We've never been without this idea. We have a very firmly gripped belief that there is someone in here. And conventionally speaking, I'm I'm here, you're there. So, but Mahasi Saito, who's one of the grandfathers of this tradition of mindfulness and Vipassana practice, he said that this belief in I am within is merely a concept conjured up in the imagination of ordinary people. It's just a concept. And this delusion, this conceptual delusion or delusional conception of this wrong understanding causes us a tremendous amount of suffering. When we're attached to and claim ownership of and identification with what happens to this body and mind. 
And the Buddha said of this wrong belief, he said, the wrong view of personality, of personality belief, has everywhere and at all times most misled and deluded humankind. It is this wrong view that has most misled and most deluded and most confused throughout all of human history, all of mankind, all of humankind. So what the anatta characteristic or the not-self characteristic is pointing to is that this phenomena of this body and this mind is not under anyone's control in an ultimate sense. It is not a being. And it arises, all of this phenomena arises and passes away due, due to its own causes and conditions. As I have often added, very little of which is under our seemingly immediate control. But, for our practice here, it's important to hear this teaching because it gives us some um, confidence in practicing uh, and that we're practicing correctly so that we will develop mindfulness, we'll see, we will see uh, deeply, insightfully, and uh, if, if we continue practice, we'll eventually realize the liberation that the Buddha is pointing to. So, I, I mentioned that this is a very difficult understanding to grok because it's so counterintuitive to our immediate experience. Is there anybody that doubts I'm in here? You know, it's so obvious in a relative sense that there's someone home here most of the time. <laughs> so it is, it's, it's counterintuitive, it's difficult to grasp intellectually or cognitively and it's subtle to realize. But I want to show, I want to give several, several examples of how we can identify this, how we experience the not-self characteristic, and I want to point to the suffering that results from it so that we'll feel motivated to practice in a way to um, realize this for ourselves. In the discourse, or on the, in the discourse to Magandhya, the Buddha said, I have long been tricked, cheated, and defrauded by this mind. For when clinging... I have been clinging just to the body and mind. With my clinging as a condition, this whole mass of suffering has come into being. I spoke about you know, the Dukkha characteristic last night and how much of our life is you know, just taking care of this body and mind you know, to keep it from being really unpleasant. And this is the mass of suffering that the Buddha is pointing to. But in conventional reality, you know, in the world that we live in, in relating to one another, it is important, it's essential that we have a very clearly defined sense of self. We need to have a very well-established sense of self to navigate the human interactions of ordinary life. I need to know which feelings, which thoughts, 
which beliefs are mine and which are yours. Now, I don't want to be mistaken, you know, when we get into a conversation or when we get into uh, any kind of interaction with one another. So it's really necessary to have a healthy sense of self, to individuate and to be psychologically independent, so to speak, so that we're not just neurotic, codependent, psychotic, kind of like unable to live independently. We have medications for those who can't put themselves together for whatever reason. You know, or we have places where we isolate them uh, in society. But in this experiential, empirical uh, practice of just noticing the way things are, you know, if we were to close our eyes and pay attention to our immediate experience within this package of phenomena, the room would disappear, the retreat would disappear, Cloud Mountain disappears, and we just have this experience of sensations in the body, thoughts, feelings, moods in the mind, coming and going. Conventional reality disappears until or unless we put it together with thought. So when we, when the sense doors take in the eyes, I mean, when the eyes take in the sights and the ears take in the sounds and our mind takes in and remembers all the thoughts of what's going on here, it takes a massive amount of mental energy to massage this raw data into the conventional reality understanding that we're all here at Cloud Mountain on retreat, right? Mm -hmm. Listening to a talk in the evening. Mm -hmm. Okay, and we all believe that. And none of us is really experiencing that. The mind has massaged this idea, this reality, into our mind. So, the, body said, the Buddha said, this body is like a clump of foam. <clears throat> so we say, I am my body. I am in my body. The body is mine. And what happens to the body happens to me. And we say this with all sincerity. And not only do we believe that, but we are very identified with the appearance of this body. Size, shape, color, texture. And we take great pains to present the appearance of this body to ourselves and to others in the way that we think reflects who's really at home here. Not only do, are we very identified with the appearance of this body, we're also very identified with its functioning. So that when we're healthy and strong and vigorous, we feel, I'm doing well. And when the body is sick, as it inevitably will become, or when parts of the body fail, like our eyesight and our hearing, and other parts of the body eventually we think, oh, I'm, I'm not, not like I used to be because my eyes are not so good, my ears aren't so good. I, I, I'm, I'm more stiff and not so limber and energetic as I was when I was younger. And so we feel that we are the body. What happens to the body happens to me. 
not only are we identified with and suffer with the appearance of the body and the functioning of the body, even our statistics, the statistics of the body. You know, you go to the doctor, you get your blood pressure reading, and they say, it's high. Oh my God. Or your cholesterol is over the top. Or for guys, your PSA is shooting up, watch out. And, and just this number, these numbers, we get identified with our numbers. And if our numbers aren't right, or at least safe, or what we've been told is okay, we get anxious, we get fearful, we you know, get apprehensive, and we feel very uncomfortable. Because we're identified with this body and its appearance, functioning, statistics. And not only do we do that with ourselves, we do it with everybody else. You know, we look at each other and we say, I know, you are your body. You are how your body is functioning. You know, so when, when you're sick, uh, well, you're not well. And we have, we have opinions about that. We have judgments about that. So we can see how much suffering there is with this identification, with just needing to groom, feed, sleep, soothe, bathe, care for this body. And when it isn't quite right, we feel ashamed, we feel embarrassed, we feel sometimes afraid, sometimes we feel depressed. And we see that, you know, our ability to seek and secure pleasant experiences for the body is a measure of our self-worth. And if we're feeling pain, economic pain, physical pain, emotional pain, it somehow diminishes, in our own eyes, our self-worth. This is how attached we are to this body. And in the end, most of us are afraid of aging, getting sick and, and dying. Uh, I know when I was younger, I never thought of it. You, you don't think about it. You're so healthy, you just, you know, you're just living. But let me, let me just remind those of you who are my age, and just caution those of you who are not yet my age. <laughs> there will come a time when, all of a sudden, everything starts pointing towards the end. And before that time, you never thought about it. It was just a concept. Just a concept. Oh, people die? Right. But at some point, whatever it is, 50, 55, 45, I don't know, something, it's like every little twitch that's not quite familiar carries the seed of the apprehension of this is the beginning of the end. <laughs> and you can't stop that from happening. It just happens. <laughs> I mean, it's surprising. It's like, because for 45 or 50 years before that, you never thought that way. And then all of a sudden, right? I'm not making this up. <laughs> but let's, Let's balance all of this view of the attachment and the suffering that comes from the attachment with the body. The Buddha taught many meditations for taking care of his body. Taking care of his body and his mind. And he was very explicit that 
you don't want to you don't want to abuse your body. You don't want to uh, disrespect it. You want to love it. You want to take care of it. You want to eat healthily, not too much, not too little. Uh, you don't want to stress it overly. And so you do you do your loving kindness and you eat the food that you need that's beneficial for you. But also because we sometimes can get over infatuated with ourselves and others, you know we need to. The Buddha said, and there was a practice at the time during the Buddha's time. I, you know, I guess we do a form of it now. And there was a practice of reflecting on all the diseases that can befall the body as a way of just keeping it in perspective. It's not yours. It's not a permanent home. Don't get too wound up in it. We do that. I mean, we do that in our own ways because it's just ever-present in our news and in our face, really. And then the Buddha said, every day, every day we should reflect on death, the fact of death, the fact that whatever's born eventually dies. Everyone that ever ever been born has either died or is going to. And since everybody is born, everybody dies, I too will die. The time and place and mode or method of dying, not unknown to all of us. Anytime, any way. Now, the Buddha suggested that we, we reflect on that, not just to get morbid, and not to just kind of like hurry out and get everything done that you want to do in this lifetime, but to realize that, you know, time is short. Make or take advantage of whatever time you have for to do what you need to do in this life to make your life uh, worthy. To, to, to gain something of worth and value out of this life. So one of the ways that we... Um, one of the tricks of the mind is that, that makes us as so identified with our body or with other people as their bodies is called fusing. <coughs> where we fuse different images that go in through the eye door. So we don't just see the hair. We don't just see the eyes. We don't just see just the ear. We see all of them, one after the other, fuse them into a face, fuse this face onto a body, fuse this body onto a personality, and that's what we get identified with. Now, if you kind of disassembled or depixelated that, and you took the hair and you took it off the head, and you put it in your soup, <laughs> you wouldn't have the traction or fascination with it that you would when it's on the head of someone that you're attracted to. Right? But it's because we've fused, in our minds, we have fused this hair, this shape, this and all of this, into me, you. Then we get attached. Then we get identified with it. Then we get attracted to Fusing separate material experiences into a solid, single unit. But, as we develop mindfulness, we begin to disassemble. Not that we visually necessarily disassemble, but we see how when we look at someone, how we see something. 
And if you're careful, you'll notice what you notice. You'll, you'll begin to be mindful of what you notice about someone that is either attractive or repulsive or catches your attention. Size, shape, color, you know, hair, body, some other body part, whatever it is. And then you can see how if there's a if there's an initial pleasant experience, you you look for more. And so you take a second look, a third look, a fourth look, look, lick. <laughs> you know what I mean. <laughs> That's where it goes. <laughs> but when we actually <laughs> when we actually pay attention to to our own body, we don't I mean, we may say, I'm paying attention to the breath at the nostrils, I'm feeling the rising and falling of the abdomen. But when you close your eyes and you feel what's going on there, there's no anatomy. You don't feel arms, you don't feel hands, you don't feel stomach, you don't feel legs. You feel hardness, softness, tightness, tingling, pressure, vibrating, heat, cold. And yet we've interpreted these experiences and we have this conceptual anatomical map that we locate these experiences and we think, oh, that's my stomach, oh, that's my abdomen, oh, that's my arm, that's my shoulder. None of us have ever felt a shoulder. We feel sensations in a location that we've known or have named the shoulder. But none of us have really felt a shoulder. Actually, this body is conditioned by many different forces. One is karma. We're born as a human this time around. And so, being born as a human, we get the genetics and the epigenetics and the DNA of humankind. That conditions a substantial part, amount, of what we experience in the body. But so too does the food we eat, depending on how much you eat, how little you eat, the quality of what you eat, the body will be affected in pleasant or unpleasant ways. And the weather, depending on the weather, where you live, whether you're inside, outside, it can have a profound effect on how you experience the body. Meaning, it's not your, it's not your decision. These other conditions influence it. And then there's the mind. You know, when the mind is comfortable, at ease, pleasant, loving, kind, the body feels different than when the mind is anxious, fretful, fearful, stressed. And so the mind also conditions the experience of the body. Nevertheless, we still think, even though we see it's genetics, epigenetics, DNA, it's the environment, it's the food, and it's the mind, we think, I'm in control of the body. It's my body. I can tell it what to do. I can tell it what to feel. The body, the Buddha says in the uh, Samyutta Nikaya, he says, the body is like a clump of foam. It's void, it's hollow, and it's insubstantial. So the 
there was a commentary written about the Buddha's teachings in, about 500 years after the Buddha by this monk, Buddhaghosa, in Sri Lanka. And he says of the anatta characteristic, the not-self characteristic, he says, the characteristic of not-self is not obvious because the concept of a solid entity, the concept of a solid entity, obscures it when attention is not given to the separate, distinct phenomena. When the different phenomena are seen separately, and the conceptual solid entity is broken up, then the characteristic of not-self becomes obvious automatically. You know, if we look at, and if we spend time with uh, a newborn baby, or someone who is just about to die, it's really obvious that they're not their body. That there's something else going on there that they're not fully or only their body. So when we see this, we see how this body is not under our own control, it's not a being, rises and passes away of its own accord, it's conditioned. Over the years of my life, I have had, uh, for a long time, I had abdominal distress manifesting in college as uh, a lot of heartburn and needing to eat a roll of uh, eat a whole roll of roulades every day. Really had some issues there, and I went to you know allopathic doctors to see what was the problem, and they didn't have a particular answer. Nothing, nothing allopathically wrong. And over the course of decades, I went to allopathic doctors, I went to chiropractic doctors, I went to homeopathic doctors, I went to Chinese doctors, Burmese doctors. And I got all kinds of, well, diet suggestions. I got medicine. I got, in Burma, I got nerve massage. You know, there's, there's massage, and then there's nerve massage. <laughs> I got to tell you about this, this Burmese doctor. This is traditional Burmese doctor. So Upandita knew I had some stomach problems, so he says, oh, I have this doctor. I'll send him over to your room. He comes over to my room. He's this Burmese doctor. So he's doing something like that muscle testing, you know, where you hold something and they do some kind of muscle testing well his way of doing it is a little different he would he would do something like that but then he would um, for one test he put a cigar between my big toe and my next toe in my leg in my foot you know and then he rolled a wicker uh, footstool away from the foot and measured one test and then he rolled it towards the foot and took a test. Then he lit the cigar, put it back between the toe and the foot, and did the same thing. Had this little wicker thing, rolled it towards my foot, rolled it away from my foot, and from that, he got the diagnosis that I needed nerve massage. <laughs> and this is not like muscle massage. Muscle massage is painful enough, but this is nerve massage. So he's got these hands that are like vice grips, and he finds a nerve that he wants to massage, and he just mashes it against the nearest bone. <laughs> it is excruciating. <laughs> Whatever you got wrong with you is superseded by that. <laughs> I think that's how, how they trick you into thinking you've been cured. You now have, <laughs> you now have a worse pain than what you had before. Anyway, 
when I came back from Burma and <laughs> was also uh, getting some additional treatments, I tried cranial sacral. I even went to the crystal lady. You know, the person who lays you down and takes a blue crystal here, and purple crystals here and here, green crystal here and here. And, you know, you lay down and you absorb the vibrations of the different crystals. Nothing worked. Anyway, <laughs> what I did find, though, was that event, and when, I was, when I was initially in Burma, I had still had some stuff, and I was keeping a, a record, a, a, a diary of what I ate and how much when I went to the toilet and how much for, for months. And there was no conclusion <coughs> of why I was feeling the way I was feeling. So I just said, well, you know what? I'm not going to figure this out. And what I did was just paid attention to the immediate experience that I was having. That's all. Just what is the actual experience? You know, there's tightness, there's tension, there's pressure, there's heat, there's, you know, swelling, there's, you know, bloatedness, there's whatever it is. And, and my mind's reaction. I got upset, I got fearful, I was afraid, I, you know, tension, I was stressed, self-pity, aversion, agitation. Eventually, I got to the point where I could just be with the sensations without any comment. They were just, oh, this is the way it is for me, for now. And that was the best medicine. It's like, stop bothering me. Or, I stopped being bothered by whatever was going on. And I think that had as much medicinal effect as anything, any medical treatment I had prior to that. Last night I spoke about the period of time when I was practicing and I had a lot of momentum and had good equanimity. And the body was so light, and so coarse, and so insubstantial. It was just like mist. No, no weight to it. No, no, no density to it. And at that time, I was lucky, and I said, "Oh, this is what it feels like when you just come out of the womb before you get identified with the body." The mind that's developing insight that is developing this insight into the anatta characteristics, can see the body as not me, not mine, not who I am, as insubstantial, evanescent, ephemeral, totally uh, not me. Not that you're abusing it, not that you're denying it, you're not avoiding it. It's just the mind sees it that way. When you have these kinds of experiences, it's not like oh, you live that way forever after. I'm pretty solid now. I, I, I know where the floor is. I know where my clothes are. I'm not mistaken about that. But when you have these kinds of experiences, when you, when you experience the body that way, when you see the body, you feel the body that way, it doesn't, your misunderstanding doesn't go back together in the same way. You just can't believe it like you used to. And this is the way insight works. You see over and over again in many different ways at many different times how impermanent, how much dukkha, and how not-self the body and the mind is. And just as the body is not-self, so too is the mind. Again, the wrong view of this mind, the mental activity of consciousness, of thinking, feeling, 
remembering, conditions a sense of self that suffers. Because thoughts are the major, are the significant, or the major manifestation of the mind, mostly thoughts. And the thoughts that we have about ourselves string together into a narrative. And everything that we have ever experienced has been woven into this narrative. Now here we are, yogis on retreat. Oh, here I am, yogi on retreat. Five days into the retreat, cloud mountain, how's it going today? Oh, this is a hard day, it was a little difficult in yesterday, but I'm looking forward to tomorrow because I've heard that fifth day, sixth day of the retreat, things are, oh, I can hardly wait. Steve's giving a talk now. I like this talk. I don't know if I understand what he's talking about. You know, and and this voice inside your head doesn't stop. And it hasn't stopped since it started. And there isn't anything that you've experienced that didn't get woven into that story. So the continuity of this voice of the observer or the experiencer creates the illusion that there's actually someone in there. So this tapestry actually is, is an, uh, the picture of ourself that this tapestry weaves is the area of our fixation. You know, we're fixated on this idea about my personal history. <clears throat> and we maintain it by this incessant, restless, ruminating. If there's nothing happening now, we, we would review the past just to reaffirm that yes, we were, yes, we still are, and here we are. So we don't just let things go by once. We ruminate on them again and again and again to reaffirm that yes, I was there, yes, I'm still here. I'm still remembering. We know how much suffering that brings. Again, believing the story that the narrator tells creates this really very small box called my life. And believe me, we have heavily edited that story. We have left out a lot of things that we do not want in that story. So when someone asks you or you meet someone new for the first time, hi, how are you? Who, who are you? What do you do? We have a perfectly sculpted edited, heavily edited version of our personal history that we are willing to relate to different people. But this monologue of myself doesn't get constant affirmation from others or from the universe, if you will, because changing conditions and others who don't agree with you challenge your self-image. And there's a pile of suffering when you have this idea about yourself and conditions don't support it or others don't support it, then we are vulnerable, insecure, fearful, not able to experience the pleasure that we expect and feel entitled to and, ha and feel victimized by those who won't support our internal monologue. So we struggle to maintain the appearance in our own mind, let alone in the minds of others, of who we want to be. It's always changing, though. It's always changing, I have here. Exciting or challenging. 
Buddha said, this consciousness, this, this consciousness manifesting as a stream of thought, is like a magician's illusion. And it is continually tying us up into this tapestry, knot by knot, thread by thread. And all experience is momentary and never changing. But, because we have never broken the chain of this monologue, the, the tapestry is constantly being uh, rewoven or continued uh, being woven. Myself is just a thought-constructed concept in our imagination. It's what we have created out of the stories we tell ourselves about our experience. So all these feelings, all these perceptions, all these memories, all this um, willfulness that we're identified with is just incessant, habitual, and weaving the, the fabric of our tapestry into a tighter and tighter, more fixed sense of self. And when we are identified with the conditions of this tapestry, we suffer the shame of uh, humiliation, uh, guilt, regret, remorse. Sometimes we're badgered by painful memories, whether it's trauma or PTSD. Sometimes we carry around this extraordinary fear that the skeletons are going to come out of our closet. And we're often bewildered, confused, and anxious about areas of our personal history that are incomplete. Sometimes feeling agitated by eruptive memories that we prefer to forget and fearful of rep repetitious, painful experiences. We act out obsessively, addictively, and compulsively to override anything we don't want to experience again. Okay? I'm not making this up. This is just what I've observed. And we can actually say, it seems like this mind has a mind of its own. Right? Making choices often against our own best interests. Causing us immense frustration, disappointment, and confusion. But mindfulness exposes all that. So be prepared. You know, there are skeletons in the closet. There are, there are shadows in our personality. There is just so much buried, buried stuff that we don't see in the tapestry. And when we practice Mindfulness, mindfulness, you know, has the function of remembering and observing. So when, as I've acknowledged before, when the mindfulness gets strong and the mind opens up and we see what's actually going on, we often can recover uh, memories that we've long forgotten. There's a lot of personal history review that takes place in the practice. And it is the it is the you know the task of mindfulness to remember, to recollect, to observe. And when we do this, the tapestry is constantly being rewoven. So we open to and have to integrate new material that we had forgotten. What we do see is how much of our life has been spent on automatic pilot. I think we can all confirm that today where the prior programming, prior programming that we receive from parents and from our earlier uh, personal history 
is in control most of the time. And our habits are often stronger than our intention, our energy, and our aspiration. Habits are really run the day. So I have to ask you a question. You know, earlier today when you were sitting and there some uh, discomfort arose in the body, you know, painful back, shoulder, knee, something, and you started the great debate, or you <laughs> noticed the great debate, should I move or should I sit still? Okay, so you know how it goes. Here comes the pain. Here comes this fear of, oh my God, could get worse. Yep, it's getting worse. <laughs> and then the debate says, Steve, maybe I should, maybe I should move now because that will help me get through the next twenty minutes. And then you say, No, 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 I'm going to be a good yogi. I'm going to sit with it this time. And so you know, your resolve voices the intention to sit with it. And then compassion arises and says, oh, no, no, be, be nice to yourself. Relieve your pain. Relieve your suffering. Move now. <laughs> and you hear the Buddha, the Buddha saying, you know, develop the energy to withstand the unpleasantness because, you know, it's inevitable that you're going to have to confront dukkha. Okay? So then you, you get some steadfastness and you, you just... Patiently bear with the increasing <coughs> intolerable pain of the body. And your patience holds out for a while until desire arises and it says, Hey, if I move, it'll be over. And aversion <laughs> says, Yeah, let's get rid of that pain. And, <laughs> and wisdom says, Yeah, but it's just another moment of something being known. You know, learn to observe it from a place of. Interest, not just trying to get rid of it. And so you have all these voices kind of competing for your intention. So who moved? <laughs> you know, at some point, we get identified with one of those voices, one of those mental states, don't we? At some point, we get, a, we, we, we get a, identified with the fear of you know, hurting ourselves, and we move. Or we get identified with, you know, aversion, and we move. Or we get identified with compassion, false compassion, and we move. And we think, we moved. We didn't move. Aversion conditioned an intent, the impulse, the intention to move. That intention conditioned the movement. The movement conditioned the feeling of relief. We thought we felt relieved. We didn't feel relieved. That was conditioned by the moving. Feeling, the mind felt this pleasant sensation. So when you look, when you pay attention in this way, and you see how, where am I in all of this? You know, because you didn't you didn't initiate that debate, you didn't moderate that debate, and you didn't win that debate. <laughs> but we got identified with every bit of it. We got identified with the anger, we got identified with the desire, we got identified with compassion, we got identified with the pain, we got identified with the relief, we got identified with... We think it's all me, that mind. All that mental activity was just an unfolding of causes and conditions that we got identified with every step of the way. Mm. 
guilt. <laughs> Just in case you've experienced any of it lately, is an identification with an unskillful choice in the past. You know, we've done things in the past. You know, we feel regret, we feel remorse, we feel guilty. And what is that? That's being identified with the person who made that decision then. Right? I was a bad person. I made this decision. I did something. Bad boy. My bad. Okay. So when you get to see this in practice, you know, stuff comes up. You know, you got these painful experiences, they come up. And you look at it and you see, oh, here's the situation. Here's what I was thinking. Here's what I did. Here's how it felt. And the one thing you'll discover around this feeling of guilt is there was confusion. There wasn't clear mindfulness. There wasn't knowing what was going on. And yet, even though we didn't know what was going on, and there was confusion, and we weren't very mindful, we still feel responsible for it. Actually, it's delusion. Delusion is responsible for it. The delusion, the unknowing, not being mindfully aware, and the delusion is responsible for those decisions that we feel guilty for. When you see this, it lifts this feeling of guilt off the heart. And you realize the person or the conditions that gave rise to that action no longer exist. They only existed for a split second anyway. Yes, you may recognize, oh, in a situation like that, I, I would do something different now. And so you can have regret, you can have remorse, but this is skillful reflection. When you reflect and say, now I would do something different. Now I understand that that's not a very skillful thing to do. That kind of remorse, or that kind of regret, is the voice of wisdom. It is vipassana. It is seeing these pixelated unfolding of the mind. It's seeing the pixelated mm, depixelization of the body that uproots this misbelief. As I said, gradually we, we begin to see through the apparent solidity of the body and the apparent solidity of the narrating. And there's one one thing, you know, in the in the narrating, when you find yourself narrating your experience, and many people have acknowledged it, that you just find themselves telling themselves what they're experiencing as if they were telling it to someone else. If you when you notice that, if you just recognize, well, this is narrating, and instead of narrating, you just note. You just note this, then this, then this, then this rather than stringing a story between this and this, and this became this, and then I thought that, and then it became that. If you crisp up the noting to note nouns instead of narrate verbs, you will disassemble the tapestry. This kind of recognition will begin to untie the knots that hold that monologue, that narrative, in place. This is, how we, this is how we begin to disassemble the narrative. 
So these, oh, I got to tell you about the story. I got a story. So 27 years ago, we bought some land on Maui to create a small Dharma sanctuary. And we thought, oh, well, we'll just, you know, build a meditation hall and we'll have a, uh, a place where people can come to practice. And when we went to get a building permit, they said, oh, you don't have a water meter. You know, you got to have a water meter before you can have a building permit. Well, this set us off on a, a journey that took 12 years with we and our neighbors to get together to do an improvement to the water system in that part of Maui so that we could get our own water meter. So it took 12 years to get permission from the, the water department to raise the money, which ended up being one and a quarter million dollars, and to do the project. And then, after it was all done, to give the whole thing to the water department, for which they gave us permission to buy a meter. So somewhere in the middle of that, when it became apparent just how much it was going to cost, about, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars more than we had thought, I thought, well, I've got to do something about this. So I drew up a list of possible options different uh, changes that we could make to the design of the project so that we, it would cost less. So I called the uh, deputy director of the water department to schedule a meeting to talk to him about my ideas for changing the design so that we could get it for less cost. So I went in to meet him on the appointed day and he was sitting in his office with three or four of his engineers the water department engineers, and I handed them all a sheet of the list of ideas I had. So I said, I'd like to talk about these ideas. The water project's costing more than we can afford. We might have to give it up. I'd like to consider, I'd like you to consider changing the design in this way. So way up at the top of the hill, about a mile and a half from where we live, we had to build a water tank. And it called for a 10,000-gallon water tank. And there was no purpose whatsoever for that water tank. So I said, wouldn't it be possible for us just to build a thousand-gallon water tank? That would save us $150,000. So they had a discussion, you know, the engineers and the deputy director had a discussion. They looked in the book, found the, found the regulation, said, no, I'm sorry, you know, uh, at that place, in this location, we need to have a 10,000-gallon water tank. Okay. So coming into that water tank was a pre-existing pipe, six inches, six inches in diameter. So it could only ever get six inches worth of water at a six-inch diameter of water at a time. But coming out of that tank, we had to install an eight-inch diameter pipe. And I said, does this make sense? This doesn't make sense. Would it be possible for us to just install a six-inch pipe coming out of that tank? Because, hey, we can't take out more than we put in. So they had another discussion, referred to the manual of you know, water design, water department design. And after a few minutes, they came back and said, no, I'm sorry, you know, we, uh, we need to have that for future development. Blah, blah, blah. Okay, well, how about this? How about that? After I raised several issues, half a dozen issues, to um, try to get the cost of the project reduced, every one of which was met with, no, I'm sorry, you won't be able to do that, the deputy director looked at me and he said, you're old enough to know and you don't need me to remind you, life's unfair. 
my sense of self went through some reverberations. And in a split second, I was humiliated, I was angry, I was defiant, I was pissed off, I was belittled, I was whatever else you can think of. I just went through it. They just scrolled through my mind like so many good options. You know. And luckily I'd been practicing for 30 years, you know, so I had some, <laughs> some ability to see the stuff without getting caught in it. And after what seemed like about half hour, I kind of recovered myself. And I thought, wow, this is, this is, this is, this can be worked with. Somehow my mind arrived at this place of, this is the way it's going to be. And the corollary of that is, this can be worked with. That's what not being identified with all these sense of selves that get stirred up. They all got stirred up by the conditions that that guy said, life's unfair. And my sense of myself was not reaffirmed. Nothing about that reaffirmed any part of myself that I wanted to be uh, identified with. And yet, as the mind scrolls through, it comes up with another sense of self. This can be dealt with. Okay. Next on the list was... <laughs> and for the rest of the list, they didn't approve anything. Not one bit. But this kind of uh, rec- recognition, this quick recognition of what sense of self is being constellated by you or by others is really essential if you want to stop suffering. Because so often in our life, our sense of ourself isn't reaffirmed. Or a sense of self that we'd rather not be identified with is affirmed. If we, if we believe in this sense of self, if we really believe that, we will take it personally. We will be ashamed. We will be humiliated. We will be you know, uh, inadequate. But the more you see it in practice, the more you see how a sense of self comes together due to these conditions, and it's there for a while, and it leaves. And another sense of self comes together, and you see it, it leaves. It leaves. Then no sense of self feels solid. No sense of self is worth hanging on to, to the point of suffering. <coughs> what we see of the, all of life's experience is that everything is impermanent. Everything is ephemeral, meaning it's just transient. It's just like mist on water. It's evanescent, thin, and it has no substance. It has no essence. This is the not-self characteristic of this whole process here. So this inner monologue... Don Juan again taught Carlos Castaneda that the way to stop the inner monologue is to use exactly the same method used to teach you to talk to yourself. We were taught compulsively and unwaveringly and this is the way we must 
this is what we must do to stop it compulsively and unwaveringly because once inner silence is attained anything is possible now remember earlier today that story you were telling yourself about your suffering you know whatever it was some historical thing or the way you're practicing today and you were just caught up in anger, frustration, disappointment, irritation, impatience. Where is it now? That sense of self that was so fixed and so real and causing so much suffering is not there. It's not solid. It's not real. Whatever suffering we get involved in, it's just a story in our head, in our heart. Just a story. When we see it that way, we can see the story, we can feel the pain, we can know it. We don't have to suffer with it, though. This is the value of developing the insight into the not-self characteristic. You don't make the self go away. You don't make this identity less solid. You just don't believe it. To the extent that we need a sense of self to navigate the world of human relations, we can do that. But when it's not being reaffirmed, we don't need to suffer with it. This is what we're learning here. See it for what it is, insubstantial, void, hollow, evanescent. So let's sit and let the words settle into our hearts. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.